Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you for having me here to uh, to speak this morning. I've, I've been very encouraged to be a part of your study and your worship this morning. I really appreciated that Bible study. It was, it was uh, very interesting to me and thoughtful. And uh, worship now has been excellent with you guys. It's wonderful to lift our voices together to God. Particularly enjoyed the last few minutes. I, I love that scripture about the, the widow that gave the two mites. I think there's a lesson that, that Jesus was teaching about, you know, the, the implications of how we handle our finances. But I think in the context, there's an even greater point he was making, too, about are we all in? <laughs> I mean, that's really what it's about. Are we all in? And to sing I Surrender All right after that was really thought-provoking as well. Um, I, I, the Lord has given us everything. He's given us life. He's given us salvation in Jesus. He's given us all. <clears throat> God is for us. <laughs> and uh, to be reminded of that with you this morning has been particularly encouraging. And so may God help us as we seek to give our whole lives back to him. I'd like you to take... <clears throat> got a voice problem going on right now. Hopefully it shakes out. But I'd like you to turn to Philemon, if you will, please. The little book of Philemon. <clears throat> little book of Philemon. Uh, this, this little book, I mean, if you can call a book of the Bible one of the favorites, that, that might help, actually, please. Thank you. <clears throat> If you can pick a book as, as uh, one of your favorites, this might be one of mine. I, I just, to me, it's a neat, unique little book among all of Scripture. And uh, to ask the question, why is it here, is a really interesting question to me. We're going to think about uh, just some general lessons, uh, kind of a framework of how I look at this book and what it teaches me this morning, and hopefully it'll be of some, some benefit to you. Uh, we're going to read it to begin. It's 25 verses. It's a personal letter inspired of the Holy Spirit, but written from Paul to some people uh, and one person in particular. And I just want to read it together with you, then we'll talk about it. Philemon, beginning in verse 1, says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf you might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. 
For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epipras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you for that. The book of Philemon, as you can see, is a short personal letter that centers around three central people. There's the Apostle Paul, who's writing the letter. There's Philemon, whom the letter was written to. And then there's Onesimus, who Paul is writing the letter to Philemon about. Timothy's included in the first verse as one who's giving greetings, and there's a couple of other names there. And a church is a part of the address as well, so that indicates there's, there's a public purpose for this letter. But the body of the letter makes clear that it's first concerned with a personal message that Paul has to Philemon about Onesimus. The outline of the letter is pretty simple. Verses 1 to 7 are a greeting. Uh, verses 22 through 25 kind of close down the letter. And verses 8 to 21 in the middle describe a request that Paul wishes to make of Philemon. What is that request? What, what do we learn within that request? Let's start with Onesimus. Who is he exactly? What do we learn about him within this letter? He's first referred to in verse 10 where we learn he's become a Christian, and specifically that he's become a Christian through the teaching of Paul. It says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. Onesimus is not a physical child of Paul. Paul hasn't begotten a real baby, but rather often in Scripture he speaks of those that he's helped to know and obey the gospel as his children. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, he writes to the to the Christians in Corinth, and he was the first one to arrive there and teach the gospel there, you'll remember. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Well, such is Onesimus. Onesimus is someone that he has taught the gospel to, and Onesimus has obeyed. He's become a Christian. Next, we learn that Onesimus has some previous relationship or connection with this Philemon that Paul is writing to. Verse 11 indicates that this relationship wasn't a, pos a, a positive one. Paul says, uh, I've begotten him while in my chains who once was unprofitable to you. Uh, but, when, but verse 16 is probably our clearest indication of what that prior relationship had been. Onesimus had apparently been Philemon's slave. Verse 16 says, Receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. I'm not going to talk in detail this morning about slavery in the first century Roman 
world. But I think it's worth pointing out that slavery in that day and culture was viewed quite differently than kind of all the, the history and the understanding of, of slavery in this culture. And we ought to make sure that we keep that separate. Slavery back in that day was, yeah, there, there could be forced slavery, but there were many who chose to go into a slave-master relationship because of the benefits that were involved in it. And it wasn't just one race that was being oppressed. People from all different um, places and, and backgrounds uh, could become uh, in, in this uh, servant relationship. Legal freedom was not necessarily beneficial to many servants, and the benefits of this servant-master relationship should, could be great. Uh, freedom could be as well. Right? And so there, there are statements made throughout Scripture about that servant-master relationship. All I want to emphasize right now is that it was, in that time, a legal commitment. And to abandon your duties was strongly punishable by law and would have, could have pretty sizable impacts on a household. Onesimus apparently had been Philemon's slave. But who's he with now? He's with Paul. And it's not entirely clear what Onesimus has done, but verses 18 and 19 seem to suggest that it's likely that Onesimus had previously done things that he ought not to have done. Verse 18, if he's wronged you or owes anything, put that to my account. And again, verse 11 says he was unprofitable to you. And Paul seems concerned with this idea of whether or not Philemon uh, will receive him properly. I mean, with, within the tactful statements that he makes in this book, he said, I, I know you will do more than even I asked, but why even write this letter if there were absolutely no concern that Philemon might be tempted to um, handle the situation wrongly? Many have considered it most likely that Onesimus had run away from Philemon and perhaps had even been rebellious in Philemon's household. This has been the traditional understanding of the context of this book, going back to early days of Christianity. But while Onesimus had once been unprofitable, Paul says now everything's changed. He, he, he is profitable to you now. He's, he's a brother now. In fact, Paul would love for Onesimus to stay with him that he might minister in relation to the gospel. And that's pretty cool. I mean, that's just a neat story to, to have this one, if he's had some kind of bad background in the past and now Paul's taught him the gospel and Paul says, I want him to stay with me. I want him to help, help me in the gospel. That's just really neat to see. I might, you know, my mind wonders, how did they ever meet? How did Onesimus come across Paul? Did he seek him out? Did he just cross paths? You know, the providence of God working in some way? I'd, I'd love to know the answer to that. But let's keep in mind kind of the circumstance here. Where's Paul right now? He calls himself a prisoner, one in chains at this point in time. Twice in verses 10 and 13, Paul refers to his chains. And the great likelihood is that this imprisonment is the, the first one um, uh, that was the house arrest in Rome described at the end of the book of Acts. Um, where was Philemon? All the clues of scripture, both in the book of Colossians and Philemon, suggest that Philemon was in Colossae. Rome, Colossae, like a thousand miles away. <laughs> so it's like, wow, what happened so that Onesimus ended up over in Rome for this to happen? The key request in the book involves the fact that Paul, who has taught Onesimus, 
and say unto Philemon, I'm sending him back to you now. Receive him as you would me. And clearly, like I said before, is there not a concern in Paul's writing that you see that maybe Philemon would be tempted not to receive Onesimus the way that he would receive Paul the Apostle. Yet Paul has given Philemon the chance to respond as a brother in Christ should. He says, though it would be very fitting of me to command you what to do, I'm doing this as it were so it will be from your heart. He wants Philemon to let go of the wrongs that Onesimus had done previously. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of the book. If I were to summarize it very quickly, this is, this is the way that I have done it in my own mind. This book is all about, to me, a wrong that is being made right, or righting a wrong. And I would sum it up in three points, or in, in, they kind of jive with the three people that we've noticed so far. And I want you to think about Onesimus, first of all. Onesimus is the person in this book that needed to make a wrong right. He's right with the Lord, right? He's become a Christian. His sin has been put away. His life has been changed. So what we're talking about here is making making right a wrong with another person, right? And that oftentimes is a much harder step for people than it is to become a Christian and lay it all at the feet of the Lord, isn't it? It could not have been easy for Onesimus to face this situation. That's what I want us to think about. It must have taken a lot of courage to face someone who might or might not show you mercy that you didn't deserve. God will show that mercy. But to face a person and not know exactly how they're going to react to you takes some more courage. It must have been tempting to say, maybe if I just ignore what I have done, it'll all go away. And I'll just deal with the life that I have now, a thousand miles away in Rome. Paul, can't I just stay with you? There's so much good I could do here. No, Paul is saying in this book, really, that it was the right thing to do before God to go back humbly to Philemon and make the wrong right. And so the challenge for us in this scripture is to ask ourselves the question, what about us? Do we have a wrong that we have committed that needs to be made right? Well, first of all, with God. That's the first question we ask. But secondly, with someone that we have wronged. Oftentimes, we've committed such a wrong that we know we need to make right with someone else, but we fall prey to the same temptation that Onesimus would have faced. And that could be a wrong committed against our spouse, a wrong committed against uh, our parents or children, a wrong that we've committed against our employer, a wrong we've committed against a brother or sister in Christ. And while in our minds we know we have changed that we wish we hadn't done what we did, that we won't do it again. Biblically, there's a need for us to make those wrongs right. Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that we ought to take the initiative in seeking reconciliation with, with with our brother. So in Matthew chapter 5, we read Jesus' words beginning in verse 23, and he said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar to worship God, and if you bring your gift to the altar 
and there remember that your brother has something against you, you take the initiative. Leave the altar, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. God demands that we seek reconciliation with our brother before we bring him worship. And it's in a really interesting context, because what did Jesus just talk about in the previous verses before these two? He talked about anger. <laughs> I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. How far is it, or how often is it, that we explode in anger at a situation and then later... You know, we know that we've done wrong, but we're not taking the initiative to seek the reconciliation after that, right? That's a wrong that needs to be made right for the sake of peace. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Luke chapter 17, if you look over there, we will read verses 3 and 4. Luke chapter 17 Verses 3 and 4. The words of Jesus again. He said, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. We're going to talk in just a minute about the, the, the need to be forgiving people. But notice that in this passage, the scenario that Jesus paints necessarily implies that the one who has sinned against the other goes to the one that he has sinned against and attempts to make the wrong right, saying, I repent, I have sinned. How often is it that we have expected others to forgive us, yet pride has kept us from even initiating, going to that person and saying, I was wrong. I did wrong against you. I'm sorry. I repent. It's not always easy to go to that someone and do that, and especially for the 70th or the 490th time, right? The challenge becomes greater, even as, as the temp I was just talking with somebody about this the other day in a situation how, you know, the, the person that keeps coming back and saying, I've made the same mistake again. I'm so sorry. Our temptation is to stop believing them. <laughs> And their temptation is to stop coming and saying, I screwed up. You don't think about it that way. The implication of Jesus' scripture here is that we confess and we seek healing from the person and from God whenever we have committed that wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you remember the problem in the first part of that chapter? Christians were suing one another. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Christians and says in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? If you go down to verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. 
And you do these things to your brethren. Christians are suing one another. They're not able to work out their differences in this context. They were taking each other to court. And Paul's saying, it's an utter failure for you as the people of God that you can't take your differences before each other and humbly and lovingly work something out. And the implication is that that should be part of the nature of Christians. That even if you can't work those things out, you should be willing to seek out the wise, um, God-fearing person who will uh, share your situation with you. You can share your conflicts with them, have them work it out with you. If you're having to go to judges who aren't Christians, sins happen somewhere. And clearly it's to be in the Christian spirit when a wrong has been done, we are those that are able to humbly you know, get down and say, Let's, we've got to make this right, I've got to make this right. So there's Onesimus. He is the one in the position of the wrong needs to be made right. How about Philemon? What position is he in? So he's the one that has to allow the wrong to be made right. And that's not an easy thing to do either. We don't know how the story ends in the book of Philemon, and, and we, we, we might say, well, of course Philemon received Onesimus back. Philemon was a Christian, wasn't he? And we say, I hope so. And yes, he should. But as I read that and I think about that, I ask myself the question, has anybody ever wronged me? And I didn't allow them to make that wrong right. I didn't forgive them. I didn't allow reconciliation. I didn't extend trust to them again. Yeah, I've been, I've been challenged by that before. Maybe that's a struggle for somebody here right now. For somebody who's trying to make a wrong right or somebody who needs to make a wrong right. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, we read just a minute ago. It's where Jesus said, if, if, if someone sins, rebuke them. If he comes to you, says, I repent, you shall forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. What did Philemon need to do? Maybe Onesimus had stolen some things. Maybe he had hurt Philemon financially. Maybe Onesimus didn't have a way to pay back. Philemon, what should Philemon do? Maybe, like 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 says, he should accept the wrong. <laughs> Allow himself to be cheated for the sake of his brother and where he's at now. Maybe Onesimus needed to do all he could to make the wrong right, but Philemon needed to join him in the middle and allow that wrong to be made right. Hebrews chapter 12 we read this. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin in verse 12. You know, the, the, these are verses that were written to Christians that were undergoing some great persecution for their faith. And, and, and the inspired writer says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness and lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What is bitterness? That's the word that stands out to me in verse 15. This word's translated from the Greek word pikria. You hear that pick. 
in that word. The word means to cut. It means to prick. According to W. E. Vi's New Testament Dictionary, the word picros means pointed, sharp, keen, pungent to the sense of taste or smell. Our English word bitter is related to the word to bite. You know, they have the same root. I think bitterness is something that is, that is pretty painful. It hurts, right? Guilt can make us feel pricked. You remember on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart because they realized that we put to death the Son of God. But someone has said that bitterness differs from guilt and that guilt is how we feel when we realize we've wronged others, but bitterness is how we feel when we believe others have wronged us. Bitterness inside of us comes from being hurt. It becomes from, comes from this sense of, I ought not to be, you know, I ought not to have experienced what I have. I ought not to be feeling or have had this impact done to me that's been done to me. In fact, that's probably, in my mind, I know there are a couple ways maybe to understand Hebrews chapter 12 and the verses that we just read and what exactly bitterness is, but to me it makes sense that in this context Christians could be tempted to be bitter about the fact that they were suffering so much. Lots of people deal with bitterness. In many families, there are family members who are bitter towards one another. Children can be bitter towards parents because they believe their parents didn't raise them properly or didn't love them or treat them the way they should or didn't do this or that. In 2 Samuel 14, bitterness was at the core of Absalom's rebellion against David. Parents can be bitter towards their children for not appreciating them. They can be bitter towards their own parents for not raising them to be a certain way or not giving them a certain something. Wives can be bitter towards husbands. Husbands can be bitter towards wives because the relationship is not what they think it should be. Employees can be bitter towards their employers because they feel like they're not being treated properly. Sometimes Christians are bitter towards other Christians, even towards their elders, because they believe that they have been treated in a way that's unchristian-like. Sometimes people are just bitter about their situation. They don't know quite <laughs> a person to direct it at. I, up in Canada, it was very interesting to me to, to uh, talk to some of the immigrants that had come to that country with you know, great degrees, great education, great you know, kind of job where they were, and they think they're going to come over to Canada, and they, you know, they're evaluated as immigrants on what kind of education do you have, what kind of work experience, but yet, once you're admitted to the country, you can't get the work that you were doing back in the other country. You've got to go through education again. You've got, you're starting from scratch again, and the bitterness towards that unfulfilled expectation and the situation was something that had to be fought. There's a lot of bitter people in the world. And bitterness is, as it's described in Hebrews 12, a root that can spring up into all kinds of other sins. Anger, hatred, malice, revenge. It can be the source of pride and arrogance, rebellion. It can be the source of antisocial behavior, complaining, gossip, destroying other people's lives. One special fruit of bitterness is remembering all the wrongs that have been done against us by someone. Ephesians chapter 4 is to me the passage that has helped me think about my response to the temptation of bitterness. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning of verse 31. The Holy Scripture of God says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Those two verses say multiple things to me in just a short few words. Number one, bitterness is a sin. It is to be put away from me, according to Scripture. Number two, I don't have the right then to be bitter. Number three, the responsibility to put away bitterness is not somebody else's. It's mine. It's mine alone. I'm called to put away sin. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. Number four, I'm supposed to replace bitterness with something. That's a key part, I think, that is missed sometimes. Because it says, let all bitterness and all these things be put away, verse 32, and do what? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And we're going to talk about the last thing in just a few minutes, but you'll notice there's a motivation for it that's described at the end of verse 32. We're going to come back to that. Philemon, if he held bitterness in any sort of way, what should he have done? He should put it away. Just let it go. And it, it was his responsibility alone. So we've talked about Onesimus, we've talked about Philemon, now we'll talk briefly about the third party. Paul, what was his role in all this? Paul was somebody who was, you know, he had not committed the wrong, he was not the one that had been wronged, he was one that was encouraging the wrong to be made right. And I know that he has taken in this letter that is now recorded for us in Scripture, an active role in inserting himself into the situation, into the middle of others who are having conflicts. He's not just sitting back and saying, hey, I hope they work it all out. That looks pretty tense. <laughs> in fact, you see, Paul is not only willing to be a mediator for Onesimus, he is willing to bear the debt of Onesimus. If he owes you, you know, he's done any wrong, put that on my account, he says. If it means that Onesimus' account would be clear. Being a mediator is not an easy thing to do. None of these things are. But it's a vital function that we've got to learn as Christians. Did you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or did you think as we were talking about those verses where Christians were suing one another, you know, he says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one? who will be able to judge between his brethren? You know, his implication is that somebody is needed. That type of role is needed at times. But number two, the implication is those should be developed within a congregation, right? That I, his point, don't you have even one? The implication, there should have been more. I think the idea is that every Christian should be developing that capability to stand as a mediator in the middle of conflicts between brethren. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, is that passage where Jesus teaches about what should we do when someone has sinned against us. It says in verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. 
But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. My understanding of this passage, when it says take with you, if it doesn't work when you go to him alone, take with you one or two witnesses, is not that you have to take one or two others that have witnessed that wrong happen, although that may be the wise course of action. I think what is being said is that the idea is that one or two should be able to be a part of the discussion about how to reconcile this, to witness the conversation, to witness that process of reconciliation, or the effort anyway, and, and they're able to help judge the words and, and also be witnesses of the words that are exchanged in that attempt to reconcile. You know, what's the very next step? Then it's brought to the church. You know, that process is then going to take place with the entire congregation if, if it hasn't uh, been resolved to that point. Is there not one or two among the congregation who would be willing to mediate in a situation like that? That's what any congregation would need to ask themselves. How many are willing and able to get in this situation and be willing to help brethren who are contemplating a wrong that has been committed? We all ought to be developing that capability in Christ. It'd be easy to say, you know, I don't have the time to do that, or I don't, I don't have the energy. I, I, what, it, Paul was a prisoner, is what I just can't get over here. Paul would have every excuse to say, I can't help this situation, I'm in chains. And what he realized is, I can help, I can write a letter. And that letter is now recorded for all of, you know, all of the rest of human life as something we can read as inspired scripture. Paul took the role of encouraging the wrong to be made right, and his role was very important. None of the three things we've talked about are easy to do. Righting the wrong, allowing the wrong to be made right, or getting in the middle of it. What is the fuel that helps us to get over how difficult these things are? Well, I think each of these three people needed to remember something. Onesimus, what did he need to remember as he sought to make the wrong right? He needed to remember we've all committed wrong. We, we've, we're all imperfect. We all owe a great debt that we cannot repay to our master above. We all screw up. The master has shown us that he loves us. He's shown us that he's merciful and gracious. He has bent over backwards in Scripture to say, I will be with you. I will receive you as my family member. You'll be my brother. You'll not be a debtor if you trust in me in whatever situation you face. If you act by faith and trust me, I'm going to be with you through whatever consequences may happen. God says, trust me, have faith in me. Go make that wrong right. We're fearful of the consequences. We're fearful of what we, we don't know might happen. And yet, doesn't Jesus himself show us that even when you know, what appears to be the, the most terrible of events happens, God can make amazing things come out of it for all of those that show faith. Onesimus needed to remember that. Philemon, what did he need to remember? He needed to remember that in order to show mercy and forgiveness and grace to others, you've got to appreciate and value the grace and mercy and forgiveness that's been shown to you. Uh, Stephen read for us Matthew chapter 18 that parable is so powerful with that, that, that king who 
you know, forgave what you've probably heard before is the equivalent of like over a billion dollars. It was, it was a debt that could not be repaid. And the servant is just begging, you know, please don't take my family away, destroy my life, and please just forgive. And the king has compassion. Forgives it all. Not, not like a, you know, you know we're, we're going to work out a contract here, and here's what you... Forgave it all. And then what does he do? He turns back around to that servant, that other servant that owed him far less, and just wrung him out. He did not appreciate the fact that his freedom, his, the blessings that he had, the life that he had, had been granted to him by mercy and grace. He didn't appreciate it because he wasn't willing to extend the same to others. Philemon needed to remember that. In fact, he also needed to remember as you go back, uh, what verse was it? And Philemon, verse 19. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. <laughs> Paul saying, remember, who you are now <laughs> is, you know, was by, was by grace and mercy and someone helping you. What did Paul need to remember? He needed to remember the example of Christ, who himself was not willing to sit on the sideline and say, hey, all those people I created are are doing wrong. I hope everything gets worked out. He was willing to step in the middle of it all as a mediator between us and the Father and to offer his life to lovingly bear our debt so that in the end, the Father's promise to remember our sins no more could be fulfilled. That's what he needed to remember. The the blood of Christ, the love of Christ, compels us to do each of these three things. I hope this morning you've been encouraged by the book of Philemon to see its message with regards to how the power of Christ compels us to make wrongs right with one another. I've mentioned Ephesians chapter 4 which is where we'll end, and the very last phrase there. Ephesians 4 and verse 31 said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the power to do these things. And, you know, if we are not appreciating the salvation that we have in Christ, or if we have not been saved in Christ, we don't have that power to be able to forgive and show grace and mercy the way these verses are talking about. So many blessings that are, that are involved in those spiritual blessings that can be found in Christ, according to Ephesians 1 and verse 3. And if you're not in Christ right now, whether, whether you've never become a Christian or whether you've become a Christian and have stepped away from the Lord, I appeal to you this morning, come back to him, because every power you need, every grace you need, Forgiveness of all your sins is found in him. There's some way the congregation here that can help you. Come forward and let us know as we stand and sing the song. And can it be?